You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus Chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar here, and joining me from Pro Football Focus is Eric Eager. Eric, how are you? I'm well. How about you? I'm doing great, and before we get going, I have something to announce to our listeners that throughout the season, we've worked out a deal, 1500 ESPN, to have Pro Football Focus personalities, not just Eric, but also people like Sam Monson that you might know comes on the station, Mike Renner, who you might know from The Bachelorette, if you don't know that joke, look it up. Um, and so anyway, Pro Football Focus personalities will be appearing on a weekly basis throughout the NFL season on the Mackie and Judd show, on this podcast, on our Saturday show. So very excited about that. And uh, Eric and I are kind of getting started early here with some, some off-season talk because I read something pretty interesting from an anonymous NFL executive, Eric, and I wanted to look into it. The executive told Mike Sando of ESPN that Kirk Cousins is not a finisher. He, the exact quote is, he was not a finisher at Michigan State, and he's not a finisher in the league. And so I wanted to look into that, but before I get into some of the numbers with you on whether someone is a finisher and how we might define that, how does, how does that comment strike you when you first see it, that an, another NFL executive would say that about Kirk Cousins? You know, it's, from my perspective, I think it, it's it's going out of your way to possibly make an error when you shouldn't have to, right? So I think there's enough reasons why Vikings fans should be uh, skeptical of the cousin signing that sort of making a narrative around a small sample size of events is probably not the way to go about it. And I think you kind of hurt yourself right away by saying Michigan State, because what the heck difference does Michigan State have to do with anything in 2018? I mean, I think of with Peyton Manning, when Peyton Manning was coming out, I must have been like 13 or something. But one of my hot takes as a youngster on Peyton Manning was, this guy throws interceptions in big games. He doesn't show up. Like, maybe I'd take Leaf, right? And then, you know, he wins a couple Super Bowls, and that some of that followed him, but usually he was playing Tom Brady, so that was the more of the issue than him being a choker or anything like that. What happens in college does not make much of a difference 10 years later, but I still thought it was interesting and worth looking into. So I tried to define being a finisher. What does that mean? Like, in, in what situations are we talking about? And, you know, what I did find, Eric, is that, when it came to the fourth quarter being down by a score in those big situations, Cousins was closer to the bottom than he was the top, but nowhere near all the way at the bottom. 
I guess I would start there, though, and why that might be that Cousins has such great overall numbers with the 4,000 yards and things like that, but maybe not so much when it came to when his team was down in a big spot and he needed to bring them back. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of that has to do with some of the, you know, the things that are stable at the quarterback position being sort of highlighted in those situations. So when you're down, you know, like let's say that you're down a score in the fourth quarter, you're not going to be using play action as much, or if you do, it's not going to hold the defense as much uh, as it would in the first two third quarters. We know that Kirk Cousins has done terrifically with play action. We know he does really well with multiple tight end sets and everything. When you're behind, that sort of gets eliminated. We know that Cousins hasn't necessarily been as strong at times in clean pocket, you know, throws, and that that is more stable. So I think, you know, those are maybe some narratives that you can pull from that, but I think, like, just the one that says in close games or when he's behind, I don't necessarily know if that's really the subset that you want to look at when when trying to trying to determine why Cousins hasn't been necessarily a, a winning quarterback over the th- first three years as a starter. Right. He's only got 190 passes in those situations, and that's toward the higher end. And if you think about 190 passes, that's about a third of uh, what he would have in, a, in one regular season. And even one regular season can tell us some lies about what kind of quarterback somebody is. But I'll give you some of the numbers. Uh, ben Roethlisberger was the best in those spots. He had 121 quarterback rating right up there with him. Russell Wilson, Andrew Luck, Tom Brady, Drew Brees. It, it seems like when you're talking about how those top quarterbacks can make those throws when they don't have play action or they don't have two tight ends and the other team knows what's coming and can play some form of drop zone type of defense, that it's no surprise that the Hall of Fame quarterbacks are going to be better. But with someone like Cousins, if he were to have two or three of these go his way, his quarterback rating could jump from 82, which it was in those 190 throws, right up to 90 or something like that. He could jump a bunch of spots. It seems like there's a bunch of quarterbacks in the middle. Andy Dalton is in this range. Marcus Mariota. Uh, Philip Rivers is there. Then there's some at the bottom, like Blake Bortles, who never comes through in these spots. And there's the very top in, in Russell Wilson. What What I'm trying to figure out, though, Eric, is... How do we know where within that middle that Kirk Cousins ranks, I guess at this specific skill and overall? Like how, we, there's a lot of quarterbacks in that spot in that somewhere between what, maybe seventh best quarterback and 17th best quarterback. How do we figure out where he should sit? Yeah. And, and I think that you also, you know, brought up a confounder there too is that Cousins is taking a lot of snaps in these situations because some of the teams he's had to face over the course of his career are better than his team. And, and that might, and so, you know, because he might have like, you know, that low 80s pass rating, as you said, because he's facing better defenses, because when he faces better defenses, his team happens to be behind in the fourth quarter, whereas a team like Pittsburgh or, you know, Seattle, something like that, when, you know, Wilson is, you know, rarely if ever behind, and when he is, his team is probably still better than the team that's beating him at the time. It's just they happen to be behind, you know, in that in that situation. So I think that there's a lot of things to shake out there. And I think when you're looking at Cousins, like because he's not, you know, two standard deviations below his normal performance in those situations, because he's not the worst in the league at something or the best in the league at something, I think I would more or less default 
to who he is on almost all of his throws, or, or if we want to substitute further, who he is on third and long, or who he is on on, on clean pocket uh, passes. And in that case, he's exactly as you said, he's anywhere from maybe the 10th best quarterback in the league to like the 20th best quarterback in the league. And and at any given season, supporting cast, situational, uh, you know, things, he can be 10th or 20th. It's just sort of one of those players. And another factor with trying to look into that, which I found interesting, is just that he had a lot of game-winning drives over the last two years, uh, but sometimes they just required a field goal. And, you know, I mean, so that's not going to really help the quarterback rating if he has a game-winning drive that leads to a field goal as opposed to a touchdown, but that's what was required at the time, including a fourth-quarter win against the Vikings where Sam Bradford helped him out with a late-game pick, and that's where a lot of these things get really muddy. But something that one of your cohorts brought up about Cousins and being a finisher that I found particularly interesting, and I'm wondering about its sustainability, is his performance in the red zone, that he was one of the lower-ranked uh, quarterbacks in red zone accuracy by pro football focus, and his red zone statistics are nowhere close to as good as what Case Keenum had last year, and this is not just for one season, but the last two years he struggled in the red zone. What can we? How much can we really look into that as a sample size and what that might mean about Cousins? Yeah, so if you just look, for example, at uh, all of a quarterback's throws, you know, the a pro football focus grade for snap or even like completion percentage and things like that, that's, you know, about two and a half times more stable year to year than how a quarterback performs in the red zone. So oftentimes, you know, you're talking about something that can, can wade for two years before it comes back to the pack. So for example, you know, a guy in our sample have 300 throws uh, in general, but only like 50 throws in the red zone. So you put two of those seasons together, you're only talking about a third of the season uh, in total. So a lot of that I would consider sort of variance is simply, uh, you know, random factors that have something to do with the fact that Josh Doxson isn't necessarily the player that the Vikings or the Redskins thought he was going to be, mm-hmm. or, or somebody, or somebody like Jordan Reed being injured in 2016 and 17 and he, him being brilliant in 2015. Um, you know, not necessarily having a running back that can push the ball over the goal line and that kind of thing. I think those are much more, you know, you, you can probably explain more with those sort of situations than just that, you know, Cousins is poor in the red zone because as we've seen with our statistics, it's not particularly a stable uh, thing to be looking at. Well, Case Keenum is a really good example of this too because he went 34 for 54, 15 touchdowns, zero picks inside the 20 last year. The year before, he went 19 for 41 with six touchdowns and an interception. And, of course, he was playing under Jeff Fisher with a bad offensive line, with no weapons on that team that had to be completely revamped in order to be a contender. But with the Vikings, they not only had all these weapons, but they also had Pat Shermer as your play caller. And Shermer did a tremendous job dialing things up. I don't know how many times... Case Keenum was throwing to somebody standing wide open in the red zone, which is no easy task. And that's something that we don't really know how John D. Filippo is going to do as an offensive coordinator. He was only an OC once before in 2015. So how is he going to be when it comes to the red zone play calling? That's where it seems like you, you get more out of uh, your quarterback is just how good your play caller is, isn't it? 
Yeah, and we saw with the Vikings, you know, with uh, 2016 when they were transitioning from Turner to uh, to Shermer, uh, and how you know how difficult it was for them to score touchdowns in the red zone. It, it does have a lot to do with sort of how you leverage your talent, uh, how comfortable your quarterback is, how much better your offensive line can be. Um, so I think with with, with Cousins, it's going to be one of those things where he, you know, how how does he, you know, mesh with Kyle Rudolph in the red zone, um, you know. Adam Thielen, and Stephon Diggs, neither of them are particularly like big, but both of them can get open. So can, can Cousins hit them? And then, you know, how Dalvin Cook figures into it. I think that's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot more to that than looking at Cousins statistics in the red zone saying, Oh, he's, he's just a bum inside the 20. It's, it's probably, you know, it's probably going to be one of those things where we just have to say something like, well, it's going to be a big question mark about how he does in the red zone as opposed to. Um, you know, in, in between the 20s, I think we know far more about how good he is. So I tried one more situation. It, I've got the down in the fourth quarter situation, and there's not a ton we could take out of that aside from saying, yep, he indeed is not Tom Brady, which we already knew. And the red zone will be very interesting to watch, to see if it's a trend or if it was more based on supporting cast and play calling. The other one was sticking a dagger in teams that Cousins really didn't do that very well. When his team got up, he was just okay. It was a, a 92 quarterback rating, which was just all right, but there were much better quarterbacks, especially Drew Brees. Not shockingly, Drew Brees, but there were much better quarterbacks when their teams got ahead of continuing to stay aggressive. But, you know, I've really been fascinated by this when it comes to theory on how aggressively teams played because, Looking at someone like Philadelphia, they are a team that if they're up, they're going to remain aggressive and continue to call plays in a, in a similar way, where we see a lot of teams back into a hole. And there was a really fascinating thread on Twitter by a guy named Warren Sharp about the uh, Indianapolis Colts, how they had a lot of leads last year and a lot of opportunities to win, and then they just holed up and ran the ball and made bad decisions and ended up botching a bunch of games and letting teams come back. So when I think of that, when I think of sticking a dagger in teams, I think a lot of it depends on just how aggressive your head coach is willing to be. Yeah, and I think, like, the, just the right perspective. So I think that the Super Bowl brings, I think, to me, the best perspective of, like, what your what your mentality needs to be. The the Eagles got up, what, 15-3 to three on the Patriots, and you can tell in their offensive philosophy that they were – they knew that 15 points is not going to be enough to win that game, right? They were shooting for the 40, 41 that they needed to win the game. So it didn't matter that the Patriots only had three at the time. They wanted to make sure that they could move out ahead. You know, for another example is Jacksonville in the AFC Championship game. They're up 14-10 going into the half, and they take knees, right? Because they think, you know, maybe 14 is going to be enough. They're making an edge with that. And I think, like, that's kind of, you know, you can you can certainly tell the teams that are like, well, we have 27 points now, and we're just going to pray that that's enough, and we're going to play that way, versus a team that's saying, well, it would be really nice to get that 34th point on the board and extend the lead and actually win this game as opposed to keeping ourselves from losing it. And I think that has a little bit more to do, I think, with coach and how that coach instills his confidence in his quarterback and those kinds of things more so than it does in sort of a quarterback's grittiness or whatever we want to uh, ascribe to him. It's almost like some of these coaches don't think of things as far as their probability to win. It's almost like whatever the situation is right there, 
that's what they try to manage it. Like, oh, we've got a 14-point lead, so let's not make any mistakes here. Let's just keep that 14-point lead when they don't understand if you're playing Tom Brady. Now, the Eagles did, but a lot of teams wouldn't. If you're playing Tom Brady, 14 ain't going to do it. We don't. You, you really don't see that as much as you should, I think, when it comes to how teams manage things. And when it comes to punting or going for it on fourth down or throwing a pass to your quarterback, going for it at the goal line there with the Eagles, I wonder if they redefine how a lot of coaches approach game management because of the way that they treated that Super Bowl on the biggest stage. And we talk about it being a copycat league. You hear that all the time. Usually it's it refers to different concepts or wrinkles and things like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little more aggression. And I would say for the Vikings, they were one of the more aggressive teams last year when it came to going forward on fourth down. Yeah, and it, and it has to do, I think, with a few things. So, as you said, like, when you when you don't understand necessarily, like, your prior distribution, so when you're you're the Jaguars and you're up four, you don't realize that you went into that game as seven-and-a-half-point underdogs. And what is more indicative of what's true? Probably what you went into the game as as opposed to the first 30 minutes of a random game, right? So, like, when a team like the Jags is up four, they should really be thinking, well, we're still seven-point underdogs. Maybe now we're only, like, three-point underdogs. But you're still an underdog. And I think that, like, the Eagles sort of understood that and a team like Jacksonville did. There's always this thing, there's this, like, idea in psychology called loss aversion. When you when you think you have something in the bag, you're you're more likely to sort of, like, try to conserve it mm-hmm. rather, rather than going and get going to get more things, right? So it was like uh, Tiger Woods always putted more, putted better on, Par putts than he did on birdie putts because a, a bogey was like mm. losing a stroke, whereas a, 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 a birdie was getting a stroke he didn't already have. And I think that that goes into a lot of it. And I think if you know that up front, you can sort of like correct yourself while it's happening. But I do think teams do act like they're they're trying not to lose something they already have when they in reality should try to go get something they don't have yet. If that makes sense. Okay. We see it all the time in basketball. Some team gets up by 12 points, and it's like, all right, slow it down. Let's run that 24 clock out. Maybe you don't see it as much as teams get more into analytics, but maybe it's just like the natural psychology of it where they always talk about, oh, it's it's a game of runs. And one of the reasons it's a game of runs is because the team that has one of those runs and gets ahead will start to dial it back a little bit. They won't shoot as many threes, or they won't pass the ball up the floor as quickly or hustle up the floor as quickly because they're trying to conserve that lead. And I, I do wonder, and I'll be very interested to see if in this upcoming season they change the mentality on that. Let me let me just circle back to Kirk Cousins because I think it's really interesting that when I look at the comments on my article, which are not insane, so like, Thumbs up to you people who commented on my article about this. One of the comments is, see, all this, you know, the the fact that he's not a finisher and executives think that and that he doesn't have the greatest stats when he's down in the fourth quarter, which, which might mean something. Um, that's all the reasons that you're going to regret it. You're going to regret paying cousins, so forth. And then another guy comes in and says, ah, excuse me, he had three-year stats that are similar to Aaron Rodgers. And it's the extremes on Kirk Cousins, this executive in his quote, is on the extreme side. The people who are trying so desperately to somehow compare him to Rodgers or Breeze, which is just pure insanity. Like, 
the truth in this case is very much in the middle, I think, with Kirk Cousins. Yeah, and I think, like, both of us, we've talked about this before on the show, like, I think both of us are a little skeptical of that he's going to be the next great franchise quarterback in the NFL, but that's a high bar, right? Like, you know, to be a player in that stratosphere, you're, you know, top 10 and you're consistently there, That that's just, you know, we're not uh, somebody who's being made available is probably is likely not that not that player. And at the same time, like we're not going to backtrack and say, you know, he's a bottom third quarterback in the league. And I think that that's just kind of where you have to, I think that's just kind of where you have to have to be. So um, I don't know. I, I take some of these negative things that are being said about him um, with probably as, as big of a grain of salt as I take some of, you know, as these these things that are comparing him to Aaron Rodgers and things like that, and what was a totally different NFL. The, yeah, the one that is the craziest that that I've heard is, hey, if you look at Drew Brees' first three years, and it, like, yeah, okay, well, Drew Brees was like four years younger, the NFL was much different. These are really easy things to brush aside. Um, but now, how he fits into this offense, the la- that's the last thing I have for you on, on Kirk Cousins in general. Just is with a new offensive coordinator. What do you think the best thing the Vikings could do for Kirk Cousins would be to maximize his skills based on, you know, the numbers that you've looked at and just having seen him play? I think, I think with Cousins, what you really want to do is you want to put him in a position where, you know, the passes that he's throwing in stable situations are leveraging the Vikings best playmakers, which are Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen. And, what you what you also want to do is you also want to take the talent uh, along their offense like Dalvin Cook and things like that and put him in positions where a lot of the outcome is dictated by scheme. So play action passes, he did terrific, terrific there with Washington with with Sean McVay. Those passes I'm going to give to the to the to the offensive coordinator more than I'm going to give to Cousins. So I think in situations where you know Cousins is the main is the main fulcrum, put less pressure on him and make it make it Diggs and Thielen. And then give him a lot of situations like they did in Washington with McVay. Put multiple tight ends on the field. Put multiple backs on the field. But throw out of it, right? And 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 that's where I think the Vikings probably hope uh, that they can develop an athletic tight end, and and Dalvin Cook can be that pass receiving back that we sort of saw because he, you know, Cousins very much leveraged those kinds of talents in Washington to his benefit. Chris Thompson went from being, uh, you know, sort of a no name to a player that was extremely valuable. Uh, until he got hurt a season ago. And I think Dalvin Cook uh, can be that kind of player and more uh, for Minnesota. And, it's, you know, I think kind of putting those two sorts of things into perspective for, for Cousins will really help. Okay, so there's part two to our conversation here because I, I needed your statistical perspective on this comment from the anonymous executive, which is to always be taken with a grain of salt, but yet it's June 11th, so we might as well look into it. Um, I'm also working on a piece, hopefully people could check it out, about Adam Thielen and which receivers he compares well to because on the NFL countdown of the top 100, the first two comparisons were Jordy Nelson and Julian Edelman. Like, ah, white guys like who aren't that similar. Do you have a name? Ed, McCa- Ed McCaffrey. Ed McCaffrey, yeah, Wayne Corbett, just like Wayne <laughs> Corbett. Uh, do you have a guy who who do you think is like the most comparable receiver to Adam Thielen? I, you know, I, I think, um, I think that like, you know, players like Michael Thomas, guys that can kind of play inside, outside and be sort of equally effective. Now Thomas is probably one of the best players in the league from the slot, 
But feeling kind of like those, having those like complementary things bigger, but not necessarily the most like, I, I don't know, Thielen uses his body really well as well. But I, I think uh, a player like that, you know, Michael Thomas, now they're similar in age, but so that's kind of a difficult comp. But I, I like that kind of comparison there where, you know, you have a, a player that can play and make damage from many different places on the field. Whereas, you know, somebody like Julian Edelman is probably more of a slot player, right? It's far better punt returner than Thielen, but, uh, you know, probably only in a comparison because of the, you know, because of race, for example. Yeah, and I, I like a lot of the things that Jordy Nelson does in comparison, or at least Nelson from like five years ago, because he's yep. fast and he uses his body exceptionally well. The only thing is, I think Nelson is much bigger. Like, I mean, maybe in only an inch or two on Adam Thielen, but as far as like his weight and strength is probably more of an asset for him than it is for Thielen and how he gets open with Thielen being more on the detailed route running side. It's just that it was too obvious, right? Like, okay, you should really go with the Daryl Morey rule. That's the uh, GM of the Houston Rockets. Yeah. And try yep. not to compare someone to someone of the same race because then you end up making more mistakes that way. So uh, my guy for this, what do you think of Keenan Allen? Even though I think Thielen is a better deep threat and is, <clears throat> excuse me, is faster, they get open because of their detailed route running and great hands. Yeah, and I think so. Allen being what six two two ten, you know, Thomas six three two ten, feeling about six three two hundred. I I like Keenan Allen, you know, very much. He exploded on the scene back after a couple of years of injury last year. I like that comp a lot. I I like Keenan Allen also as a comparison with Stephon Diggs, right? And that sort of I I think Diggs is probably on a different caliber in terms of route running uh, than than Thielen, and I think sort of uh, Allen sort of splits the difference between between Thielen and Diggs there, um, you know, being a little bit bigger, but also a very, very, you know, slick route runner. I also think that Diggs is a good comparison for Thielen because they both can use, uh, they can both be used in any different way. They have great hands. They could go deep. They could play in the slot. They basically switched roles from 2016 to 2017 and were equally as good at being, whether it's outside or inside and, uh, you know, winning contested catches, Diggs was the best in the league at that. So the, I think those are better comparisons than, I mean, if you had said Jordy Nelson five years ago, I could get into it, but now there's no way he runs a 4-5-1 anymore, and he's basically going to be limited. He'll almost have to be like that Anquan Bolden playing for the Lions, sort of just box people out using his, his big body. But um, anyway, the, that, the sorry, go ahead. That's something that's, something that's characteristic of the NFL now, right? I mean, back in the day, the really the only big slot receiver was Chris Carter, you know, at 6'3", 210 or whatever. Now it seems like all of these these bigger receivers, the Thomases, the, the Larry Fitzgerald in the middle of his career, the Diggs or Thielen, a lot of these bigger players, Nelson even uh, in 2016 with Green Bay, a lot of these bigger receivers are going into the slot knowing that defenses have yet to adjust. Uh, and put one of their better corners inside, they're seeing a huge edge offensively by doing that. So it's a, a cool thing, and I think from the Vikings perspective of the Vikings offense, when you're looking at who's going to be the number three, it's really beneficial where your top two guys can play inside or outside because then it allows them to freely make a decision between Kendall Wright and uh, Laquan Treadwell. Well, and that's where I, I'm interested to see where Kendall Wright actually fits in here because if he's only a slot receiver, then – I don't th think it's maximizing Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen's opportunities if you're sticking one guy there. At the same time, there's 
when you look at the Philadelphia offense, they use three-by-one sets all the time, three re- receivers on one side, where you basically have two slot guys in that situation, and they would put the tight end on the other side, and that just causes all sorts of problems for the defense. So maybe Wright ends up being as more of a chess piece type guy that doesn't end up with a high number of receptions, but can offer you uh, some skill, like that specific skill of getting open short and over the middle. And then we'll see where Laquan Treadwell fits in, if Laquan Treadwell fits in at all. But um, So there's a part three. That was part two. The part three is I've started, you, you kind of pushed me onto this, and I started doing it more often since we talked about it, which was going back and watching old games on YouTube because there are so many old games on YouTube. And so I want to do this every so often, just a little bit of a blast from the Minnesota Vikings past of games that we forgot that were great and you and I ran across on YouTube. So the date is November 23rd, 1995. Minnesota Vikings, Detroit Lions, Thanksgiving in a 44-38 win for the Lions. And you and I have been watching this back. What is the, what's the first thing that stuck out to you when you went back and, and why you wanted to show me this game other than just how kind of crazy it was being 44-38? Because I've been watching it and it's amazing. Right. So like this is, this is one of the great treasures that football gives you. You can like go back in time and be like, Oh my goodness, Scott Mitchell used to throw for 400 yards against Tony Dungy's defense and still not be any good. Like, yeah, that that to me was the thing that stood out. The Lions in this game had a 100-yard rusher and three 100-yard receivers against the Vikings defense that was uh, coordinated by Tony Dungy. And that's just like the start of it. But I thought that that was the funniest thing. And the quarterback being, of course, of biggest loser fame, Scott Mitchell. So I'm I'm going to link this in the description of this podcast so people can watch it because it's amazing. I'm just going to give you some of my notes. Uh, first of all, on Scott Mitchell. This man has the worst body language I have ever seen. I remember <laughs> I remember this game. I was old enough to have watched it and old enough to have watched the Scott Mitchell era. But as a youngster, I don't think I realized that Mitchell comes across as the biggest tool in the entire world when he plays. <laughs> he gets bumped down by Jack Del Rio and acts like he got shot. He, he at one point is limping around so much that they show Dan Majowski on the sideline. You're like, how could you possibly have gotten hurt there? Every bad throw, he goes up to the wide receiver after that. And not to apologize, it doesn't look like. He just has this terrible body language, and he's making horrible throws all day. He's inaccurate. He's got a brutal pick. There's another bad interception that's called back. And the guy ends up with 410 yards and four touchdowns. (laughs) It's hilarious. I mean, the Vikings defense was like, and that season was especially like special, I thought, for the Vikings defense because they would have like, you know, they would just get dragged up and down the field. They played, you know, 4-3 defense against a three wide receiver base offense. Every down but third down, they would get like, you know, Brett Perriman caught 12 of 18 targets for 100. This is 1995, not 2015. And like two touchdowns. And the Vikings are trying to cover him with Broderick Thomas and Jack Del Rio in the slot. And then, like, every once in a while, Orlando Thomas could get one pick because he had nine that year mm-hmm. somehow by just, like, playing center field. And, watch, you know, 1995 quarterbacks would, like, play brilliantly for, like, three passes and then they just airmail one to the free safety. <laughs> so I just I just thought – and then, like, we talked about, like, the fumble. So the Vikings had 
two two special teams touchdowns in this game, a punt return by David Palmer, and then a fumble recovery on the ensuing kickoff. But like guys fumbled more back then. I mean, just, the game is totally different, and it's it's so hilarious to to watch these things back. Um, the jackets that Wayne Fonts and Denny Green are wearing, the classic starter jacket with the pocket in the front. And the game is indoors. So like maybe they're being forced to wear these jackets on Thanksgiving Day. You have John Madden breaking down the turkey. So he's drawing on the turkey about the best spots that he wants to eat of said turkey, which uh, everyone who watches Thanksgiving games now of this younger generation is missing out on John Madden analysis of the turkey. Also, Barry Sanders starts this game eight, eight runs, minus eight yards, and then finishes the game with 138 yards on 24 carries. He had a 53-yarder that, as you told me, I haven't quite got there yet, but he fumbles it out of the back of the end zone, so it's not a touchdown. And then he has a 50-yard touchdown run in this game. So it's like the most classic Barry Sanders of being horrible for the entire game and then ending up with two 50-yard runs and a great day and a great average. The other thing is, how did this Lions team not do more? Like, they must have been really poorly coached because these wide receivers, Perriman, Moore, and Morton, including the fact that, like you said, the defense was playing an extra linebacker, so they're just getting shredded all the time by these great receivers. I can't believe that they weren't better during this era. Well, and it's, so this is the year Detroit started three and six. And then everybody, every single year, Wayne Fonz is like on the edge of getting fired. And then they would go on like some run, but they lost their playoff game at, on the road against Philadelphia, 58 to 37. And it, and it wasn't really that close. I think the game was like 51 to seven. And then Don Mikowski came in and just started throwing his touchdown passes to Herman Moore. Um, but, yeah, I think that, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing where it's like when your quarterback Scott Mitchell, you can only go so far no matter how good, uh, the supporting cast is. Maybe that's is Scott Mitchell, one of the last, like, free agent starting quarterbacks that was like a big name. Maybe Vikings fans can, uh, can, you know, take solace or be scared of that. But <laughs> it's sort of an interesting, an interesting, an interesting, uh, feeling on, on, uh, teams with that kind of player at the QB spot. Couple other things before we rack, wrap up my observations. Uh, Amp Lee and Jake Reed, very good players. They were really good. Like Amp Lee's coming out of the backfield running screens. He gets nine catches in this game. That's a guy that is sort of forgotten about who was really good in that third down role. And you think if he played today, he would be a pretty valuable player. Yeah. I mean, he had like 71 catches that year. I think that he was, yeah, I think it's, there are guys like him, Ronnie Harmon was like a Bill and a, and a Chargers player, I think would be good. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, poor man Thurman Thomas's, right? Like those guys would, would rake in today's NFL. And back then they were sort of underappreciated. Jake Reed was a player that I think a lot of Vikings fans don't quite remember being as good as he really was. But Jake Reed had four 1,000 yard receiving seasons as the number two to Chris Carter before Randy Moss showed up. In this game, he had like six catches for a buck 49 and a touchdown. I think he had an 80 yarder called back earlier in the game, too. So he was very good. Um, and, you know, Warren Moon, I think, it, you know, Hall of Fame quarterback, obviously, but I think I underestimated like how pretty of a pass he threw. Because he was one of the best arms. I think he was 39 in this game. So still throwing just like lasers all over the place. Um, so again, I think Vikings fans are pretty spoiled by some passing games in the 90s. Yeah, he had a 55-yard touchdown to Jake Reed. He was the throw was actually a little behind Reed in, in that one because the defender fell down and he just 
had to launch it out there as fast as he could. On the David Palmer punt return, Mark Royals is the punter, and his attempt at a tackle is worth watching the entire video on its own because he just falls down. And that's one of the funny things. Like, the shoulder pads for some guys are twice as big as they needed to be. The punters all weighed 164 pounds, and now they're, like, jacked, and they work out all offseason. Like, how much was Mark Royals, like, lifting weights? I'm going to guess not a whole lot. They used to argue, like, oh, he's got to stay flexible. Like, oh, okay, so that's why he doesn't That's why he doesn't lift any weights, huh? Um, but anyway. But on the other side of that, Jason Hansen, the, the, the Lions, Place kicker a beast. absolutely drills Kadri Ismail on a kickoff return. Yes, where yeah, Kadri dr- runs it back about fifty yards, and and Jason Hansen probably I, I think he would have made Trey Wayne blush. Subtly a great player in the NFL, Jason Hansen, like a great kicker, had amazing range. I remember on Madden sixty four, he has ninety nine power, and then that tackle just makes him a boss. So this game is amazing, and if you want to go back and watch it, you really should. And we're, we're going to take a look at some of these just to remember some great Vikings of the past. I mean, Scotty Graham carried the ball six times for 22 yards in this game. I have no recollection whatsoever of a football player named Scotty Graham, but he, he was in this game, and he was getting the football, so that's one of the most fun parts of this. Robert Porsche, how good he was. Some of those interior linemen for the Vikings. I mean, the, the, you, you mentioned to me that this is Jack Del Rio's last game. It's, it's great. So I, I hope that people like going down memory lane a little bit and, and having a little fun with this. And, uh, Eric, I look forward to you and I talking pretty often throughout uh, the season since we have this new deal with PFF. Can't wait. Can't wait. Was that Bart Scott? Bart Scott, man. Bart Scott. All right, uh, mini camps coming up this week, and so Courtney Crone and I will have a lot of coverage there. Also, we'll keep the interesting guests rolling on in from random backup quarterbacks to uh, whoever else I can dig up that I think you guys will enjoy. So thank you all for listening, as usual, to the Purple Podcast.